Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 16th of February, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Liam teaches us about the Kingdom of God. Liam is one of the teaching pastors at Christchurch London and a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. <clears throat> Should we start session two? Mm-hmm. <laughs> one person says yes. Okay. And, and actually, you brought us onto it brilliantly by talking about the themes of Jesus' ministry um, that come through in all the Gospels, and the kingdom is right at the centre of it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So um, how does Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, his death and his resurrection fit within the grand theme of Scripture that one author has put together? And how should we understand the central theme of Jesus' ministry, which is the kingdom of God? So, turn over to... I really should have put page numbers on these, shouldn't I? But the one with six boxes saying the story of the kingdom at the top. All right, let's, um, let's give a, a brief recap of the story of the Bible. Don't worry, this will be very quick. Um, but I'm going to go back to in the beginning. <laughs> um, and let's look at it particularly through the theme of kingdom, because actually it's easy to think that the kingdom is just something that Jesus talked about uh, in the New Testament. Actually, it runs right the way through. Even when the word isn't used, it's implied. So in Eden, for example, uh, we get this, this sort of scenario in which God reigns, like God is in charge. Eden is a picture of what the world is like when it is running under the rule and reign of God. And mankind is made in Eden in God's image, which means a whole load of things. I mean, we could... In fact, you probably did when Andy Johnson came and did the whole session on Genesis. I haven't listened to it, but chances are he, he probably looked at what it means to be made in the image of God. And it means a whole load of things. But one of them, one of the interesting things it means is that we're made sort of like little kings or at least little representatives of the king. So in the ancient world, there were plenty of examples. And I put some of the, the names there. You can look at them yourself. But of, of kings who what they did in order to mark out their territory, in order to help people understand the extent of their rule, they would create these statues. So when they took over a land, they would at the borders of the land, they would erect this statue that was like a statue of them or at least represented them. And it was called their image. And that thing would, you would come across this. And if you were thinking, whose land am I about to enter now as you get to the border, you would look at the image and you say, oh, okay, I am coming under the rule of this particular king. So when you enter the land, you'd know, I know who's in charge here. I know whose kingdom I am in. So when God says, I have made you in my image, part of that, I mean, there's dignity, there's connection with him, uh, there's, there's reflecting something of his likeness and his nature. But I think there's a sense in which when people come across us, they're meant to go, ah, I know who's kingdom I'm coming under. I know who's in charge here. We are meant to reflect something of the kingdom, to expand the borders of Eden, the rule and the reign of God. And we see this in what we were created to do. So God told mankind to rule, to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it, working and serving and tending and keeping this world. These are all 
um, words to do with uh, using power, to use influence, to rule, to reign, to extend the borders of God's little garden kingdom. But of course we know in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and says, um, don't eat, uh, what did God say? You can't eat the fruit of that particular tree? And no, 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 if you eat from that, you won't die. Actually, what will happen is you will become like God. So what you can do is you can have... Um, the kingdom without the king. You can kind of get rid of the king and you can rule, you can reign, you can usurp his power. So in Eden, we see immediately, this is what it looks like when God is in charge. Everything works. There is a relationship um, with creation, with one another, with God, and it's all pure, it's all perfect. As soon as we try and get rid of the king and be our own kings in our own right, rather than being the little images who point to that king, then everything starts to unravel. And we see right throughout the kingdom, the uh, right throughout the story of the rest of the Old Testament, this kind of I guess, crumbling of the kingdom, as it were, but also the promises that a new king is coming. Someone is coming to put things right. So God promises a kingdom and a king that will come from David's line. And we've already seen that 2 Samuel 7 passage earlier. And uh, someone asked what the word gospel means. I mean, gospel means good news. That's literally just what it means. But in Isaiah 52, verses 7 to 8, I think we get the gospel according to the Old Testament. And it's, um, it's the good news that your God reigns. It's the good news that God is in charge, that he is the king, that his kingdom is here. We get promises about someone who is going to come and bring the kingdom in full. So Isaiah 9, which we read at Christmas, um, it says that this coming one will be mighty God, prince of peace. He is a ruler. In Isaiah, there are then strange hints that somehow this one who suffers, this suffering servant, his death will somehow bring reconciliation. And it's not clear how that works in Isaiah. Um, spoiler alert, it's Jesus' death and resurrection. But uh, it's, it's just there, it's set up, this promise, it's coming, even though it's not explained in Isaiah. But then Daniel chapter 2, you get the story of this, um, this, this massive statue that represents the kingdoms of the earth. A tiny little stone smashes that statue, the whole thing crumbles. Uh, but this stone becomes a mountain, which is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You get this promises that all other kingdoms fall, all other kingdoms fail. But this coming king will establish his kingdom. It will never be defeated. And of course, I've just summarised the entire Old Testament in a couple of minutes. So that was very quick, but there's no other choice really. But then Jesus gets on the scene. And what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's not an isolated statement. It's not like... What do you mean? We've never heard about this kingdom. The whole Old Testament is about this kingdom. It's about the rule and reign of God that was there in Eden, which we screwed up, but that God has promised to put right. And Jesus says, now, now the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom frequently featured in Jesus' teaching again and again. In Matthew, uh, he talks about the kingdom of God five times and he talks about the kingdom of heaven 32 times. And these are not two separate things, actually. If you look at um, the way that uh, Matthew uses it compared to some of the other gospel writers, um, it's clear that Matthew is talking about the same thing. Uh, and you can see direct parallels. Um, and chances are, actually, what he has done, there was a Jewish tradition known as circumlocution, which is where you, rather than saying the name of God, sometimes you say the name of something else 
instead because you want to honour God's name. So rather than saying the kingdom of God, Matthew, probably with his particular Jewish lens and writing to Jewish people, talks about the kingdom of heaven, but he means the same thing as the kingdom of God. It's a keen theme in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Mark, it's mentioned 14 times, Luke 32 times, John only twice, actually, but, um, and I don't know if you looked at this last time, um, but John talks a lot about life, and it seems clear that when he talks about life or eternal life, he uses that in much the same way that the other synoptic gospel writers talk about the kingdom of God. So this theme of the kingdom runs right through. I'm just going to move forward a little bit because I'm a tiny bit blinded by that light, um, spiritually. Um, so, <laughs> so this is the backstop of the um, uh, backstop, the backstory, backstop. Man, I've gone on Brexit on you. Um, <laughs> Just imagine if I just sorted the problem like that. <laughs> no, okay. Um, this is the backstory of the kingdom. So people were expecting something about the kingdom. Um, and then when Jesus comes and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, there were certain expectations. People were not hearing that for the first time thinking, I don't know what that means. Like they had expectations of what the kingdom would be like. So what were the expectations like? Um, would it be considered good news? Well, it depends very much on what you think the message of the kingdom is. Um, the way that you expect the kingdom to come will affect the way you hear Jesus' message, the kingdom is here, it's breaking in. Um, you will think, ah, oh, great, this is going to look like X, Y, or Z, depending on what your hopes and dreams already were. So, at the time of Jesus, um, it, sometimes we talk about Judaism at the time of Jesus. Actually, it's probably more accurate to talk about Judaisms because there are so many different flavours, I guess, of Judaism, um, according to different traditions, uh, different leadership groups, um, different focuses. And so there were a whole diverse group of opinions and thoughts, but maybe three particular ideas that come through uh, about the kingdom in particular. And it's not to say these were the three groups. I haven't really mentioned the, the Sadducees at all, but um, these were the three main views that people had about the kingdom. The Pharisees, they expected... Um, about the kingdom, that the way the kingdom was going to come was by intensifying the observance of the law. So if we can be as close to the law, as pure and as good as possible, then that will somehow create the conditions for God to act as he has promised to, to judge the pagans who are oppressing Israel and to liberate his people. So the focus is on the law. So actually when the, when the Pharisees are sort of nitpicking about the law or criticising Jesus for for loosening the law or going against the law like it's easy to get annoyed with the pharisees but actually if you understand what they were trying to do they were caring about purity because they thought unless we are pure of heart unless we are doing the things that god wanted us to do then god is not going to bring his kingdom so they had sort of good motives there it's just that they had skewed the idea of what the law was about they created a whole load of laws that god hadn't put in there in the first place but it's easy just to i'm not saying like hey let's be pro-pharisee but that it's really easy to think that they're the bad guys but this was their expectation. This is how the kingdom comes. It's by his people getting their hearts ready. So that's why they seemed concerned when Jesus seemed to be pulling people in a different direction. His message about the kingdom didn't resonate with their expectations of the kingdom. So firstly, you have the Pharisees. A second group is the Zealots. They believed that the kingdom of God needed to be advanced by a demonstration of power. If people were serious about the kingdom, they thought they would be willing to fight and die for it. And there's a history of uh, people who took this view. For example, Judas Maccabeus and the uh, Maccabean Revolution of December 25th, um, 164 BC. What a way to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> Slaughtering people. So um, <laughs> that's how we do it in our house. <laughs> 
Monopoly just gets a bit out of hand. But, um, so, so the zealots thought the way that the kingdom was going to come was through violence, through force. And so there are certain things in Jesus' ministry that would have annoyed them. Him talking about peace, talking about turn the other cheek. Um, Peter draws a sword. Jesus says, put that away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. The zealots are like, no, 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 that's how the kingdom is going to come, by the sword. So certain things about their expectations would have jarred with Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. A third group is the Essenes. So believing that others had lost sight of the truth um, and had become corrupt, essentially, and convinced of their own special status, the Essenes enacted the exile that God's people were experiencing by separating themselves and living as an exiled people. So they they went and they lived in the wilderness, um, demonstrating by their wilderness existence the fact that the promises of restoration and redemption are yet to be fulfilled. Their task was to stay separate in prayer and purity. So these people wanted, uh, wanted everyone to know, you may be back in the land, but we are not out of exile because we are still being ruled over by the Romans. Uh, our leadership is corrupt. We're not experiencing the kingdom. And so physically, they went and they lived out in the desert as a way of demonstrating, almost like an enacted parable. This is where Israel is right now. And we are going to wait and long and pray for God's kingdom to break in. And that didn't work too well because they all died out. But there we go. So these were the three expectations of what the kingdom is like. So when Jesus comes and he says the kingdom is here, that's three groups of people who would have gone, wow, great. That means like we've nearly reached the level of purity or we need to emphasize purity more. Other people are like, great, it's time to fight. Other people are like, great, it's time to get out of the desert. (laughs) I'm sick of the sand or whatever it happens to be. People would have heard it different ways. How accurately they resonate with Jesus' understanding of the kingdom is a different matter. So let's go to the next page and we'll do this one quickly and then take our break. So what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Well, the first thing to say is that the kingdom is not a geographical place. Um, The kingdom is not where we go after death. The break's at 11.15, is it? The break is at 11.15. Oh, great. I don't have to rush quite as far as, as, uh, as I thought. Okay. I'll breathe then. <laughs> the kingdom is not a geographical place. Um, the kingdom is not heaven. The kingdom is not somewhere you go after death. Actually, the kingdom is anywhere where God's rule is evident. Um, so Tom Wright calls it the sovereign and saving rule of Yahweh. Uh, D.A. Carson calls it the king dominion of God. That is, it's anywhere where God's rule is in charge. So, um, so, so anywhere where you are experiencing God's rule is experiencing something of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has broken in at this moment. It has broken into this area or this locality. And I think that's really important because some people think that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's got this idea that actually uh, what matters is not this earth and how we live now. It's what happens after death where we float off to this place, the kingdom of heaven. That's totally not what he was saying at all. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is breaking in or the kingdom of heaven is like this, or if you live in the kingdom, you need to live this sort of way. He's saying your earthly life now is about you bringing something of the kingdom, bringing that rule of heaven into the here and now. It's life as it is meant to be under the kingship, under the rule of God. That's not to say it doesn't relate at all to eternity or to life after death. It does. And here's a diagram to explain why. (laughs) So we live in this world right now. Um, At least I do. (laughs) We live in this world right now. And this world is a complex place. It is a fallen place. There are all sorts of powers wanting to establish their kingdom and to rule over this world right now. 
And we live in a fallen world. It is full of evil. It is full of sickness. It is suffering, full of suffering. It is not the way that God intended it to be under his rule. But at the first coming of Jesus, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it is breaking in or it is close. You can reach out and touch it. It has come. He said when he healed people, um, if I cast out a demon by the finger of God, it's like the kingdom has come on you. So there are moments where the kingdom just breaks in to the here and now. We're experiencing something of the kingdom through Jesus life and ministry the king has come to bring the kingdom and he taught about it and he showed it that the kingdom was at hand and then through his death and his resurrection he sort of formalized that as it were that was the biggest boldest clearest show that the king is back the king is in charge and that he is going to make this world new but then what did he do he ascended into heaven and he gave us the task of continuing this kind of kingdom task this kingdom message taking it to the world bringing more of the rule and reign of God as image bearers who point to his rule and we're told that there will be a day when he will return at the second coming and then the kingdom will come in full so in revelation chapter 11 uh, and verse 15 which isn't in your notes, but write it down. It's a key verse. It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, and this is future looking, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. So there will be a day where this world now, where there are all sorts of rival kingdoms at play, will be fully given over to him, fully under his kingship as it was back in Eden. But it's not yet. So we live now in this sense that the kingdom is sort of here but it's not fully here it's not as much as we would like it to be and so there are pockets of um, demonstrations of the kingdom we get to experience things of the kingdom the fact that we're here in this room that we have had our lives changed by Jesus that shows that the kingdom is here the fact that we can preach the gospel and people respond occasionally and, uh, and we pray for the sick and things happen I'm getting ahead of myself here like there are signs that the kingdom is coming but we're all too aware that the kingdom is not here in full because there is sickness and there is suffering and there is pain and there is death and there is stuff that wouldn't be here if God was completely in charge so we are looking forward to that second coming when the kingdom will come in full when he will make the world new the whole world will be renewed and we will live forever in the new creation the new heavens and the new earth we don't float away to the kingdom of heaven heaven breaks in and makes this world new and we will dwell forever there with him with no sickness no suffering no pain and no death and Jesus was proclaiming that that kingdom was breaking in it was coming it was punctuating the darkness in this world and the technical term for this if you just want to seem clever to anyone who care is inaugurated eschatology that is um there you go two five syllable words just <laughs> boom um <laughs> yeah 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 i don't want to play scrabble with you <laughs> um but yeah inaugurated eschatology that is um the the, the final plan for everything to be renewed, what will happen at the end, the new creation, has been inaugurated. That is, it's been begun now. It's breaking in. So it's not here in full, but it has begun. And so when Jesus says uh, for us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, he's essentially saying, well, you live here right now, but what you need to do is pray, Lord, thank you that your kingdom is here a little bit. Will we pull more of the future into the now? We get more of that future here and now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. Yep. So at a good time then, it's going to be a good time later. Yep. Can you tell me about today? Today. Is it on the earth? Sorry? Is it on the earth? 
Is it a lovely earth today? Um, bits of it. I mean, London's great. Manchester's... <laughs> <laughs> joke, joke. Um, joke, I love it here. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I've lost you. I've lost you all. Yeah, I, so, it's a mixture. I think when God said the earth is good at the beginning, I, I think it's still good. There's plenty of good in this world right now. Um, so the world has not been corrupted to the point where it's completely evil, but it's also not as completely pure and as good as it was or will be. Um, so I think that's the weird tension of living in the now and the not yet. There's plenty of great stuff about this world, but there's also plenty that isn't good. And I think our task is to reflect the good that was and will be, uh, and to do the best that we can to contribute to the flourishing of this earth. So, interesting, I think a lot of us are fixated on the idea that our only task is to preach a good message so that people understand something up here so that they can go somewhere else when they die, and that's it. And that's not it, because we were told at the beginning to rule and to reign and subdue and to care for the earth. And, and so I think that's something that we should be doing now. So everything in this world has the potential to glorify God or not glorify God. And so our task is to, uh, through the way that we work, through the way we care in our communities, through the way we care for creation, um, is to reflect something of God's good intention for the world to try and make this world a better place. That's not to say that if we get to a point where we've made the world good enough, suddenly it will become good enough to last for eternity. When God makes the world new, he, he will do that. It'll be his own task. But I think our task right now as image bearers is in everything we do, all areas of our lives to uh, to sort of, yeah, yeah, I guess create more goodness, to reflect the goodness of God, to expand the goodness that is already there and to work to crush the darkness that is here with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, no, sorry, that would take, take us on a tangent, so I won't go... Yeah. I have, yeah. I'm doing stuff with a youth group at the moment, mm, great. and I just thought I'd share this. My youth group came to the conclusion that they're really lucky living on the earth now mm. because when heaven does come, they will really benefit from it they will have lived without it. Sure. Yeah. So, and they, I loved how they got it, and that's how they saw it, that they're really lucky to live now. Yeah. Because they will benefit. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're very used to the pain of the not yet of the kingdom. Yeah. And... Um, which means there are tears in our eyes right now that will be wiped away in the, in, in the new creation. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so I've been thinking a bit about this recently. I've... Um, just realised how easy it is to forget the... Like, we're meant to care for this world aspect. So, you know, you hear all the stuff about climate change, and it, some of it's slightly terrifying. <laughs> but, um, but God told us at the very beginning, care for this earth. And I think that's something that often Christians have neglected, either because they thought it doesn't really matter because God's going to give us a new one anyway, which is just irresponsible, um, or because we've not really thought of it as being very spiritual. Um, actually, it's a spiritual thing. It's literally what we were told to do. As part of representatives of God, we were told to care for this earth, hence I'm trying to cut down on paper and plastic and that sort of thing, and just do the little we can, and to see everything we do as being part of God's plan to bring something of the kingdom um, wherever we are in this world. And, yeah. mm, right. All right, so Jesus then told his disciples um, the kingdom is here and then he told them and the kingdom should come through you as well so he sent his disciples out right and he told them to proclaim this message 
The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he said this, heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was breaking in. And he did so in two ways, through his words and through his deeds. It wasn't just a message that he said, he showed it as well. It's like the kingdom is breaking in. Well, show me, okay, get up and walk. Like he showed the kingdom was breaking in. And then he told us to go and do the same. And so what I want to look at for the rest of this session really is what that looks like. Um, what did it look like in Jesus' ministry? And then at the end, maybe we'll think about what it looks like in our ministry. And, you know, maybe let's pray at the end as well and we'll see what happens. But, um, well, now probably seems like a good time to stop. We're a little bit earlier. But why don't we stop now and come back at 20 past? Is that okay? And then we'll, um, we'll spend the rest of the time looking at the kingdom. Everyone okay? Yes. Are you with me so far? Is there anything I've said that you've been like, what? <laughs> um, like any kind of, I mean, obviously a day like this is going to raise questions. So you may have questions about a whole load of things. You'll be like, I've got one question about one particular verse in Mark's gospel. Like, let's leave that for now. But if there's anything that's like, this is a roadblock to me actually engaging with the rest of the session on the kingdom. Can you say something again about the, the tension between the new creation mm. and the old being thrown away? Mm. So I think, um, so we live now in the now and the not yet. So where we are now, the kingdom has partly come um, and the kingdom should continue to come through us. And we'll get onto that in a little bit. Um, But we live with the reality that it's not yet. Uh, There's this promise of a new creation, a newly remade earth. Um, But I think now we are tasked with living as we were intended to in Eden and in advance of that day, praying for something of that future to come in to the here and now um i don't know if this is where you're going with your question but some people say well why does it matter if god's going to renew the whole earth anyway and my point is that's a stupid question <laughs> no, that's not my let me question. rephrase that <laughs> no i know that wasn't your question exactly but um or maybe it was in which case i'm sorry but not sorry um i, I think it's the wrong question to be asking is probably a, <laughs> a way, kind of way of answering it um because w- what it suggests is that we said um well, God's going to renew the whole earth, so we don't need to worry about that because we're looking to the future where he's going to change everything. I'm like, look to the past. What did he tell you to do in chapter one of the whole book? Um, it's care for the, the earth. So, so it would be foolish to say, well, we don't have to do what God told us to do because he's going to do something else about it anyway. Like, the point is he always told us to care for creation. And um, the fact that we've neglected that for thousands of years, I'm not saying we all have, but like many of us haven't thought of that as being part of a Christian duty, me included. I put myself in that. I'm not... I'm not green through and through. Like, this is something I'm having to work through now. Um, if I was just saying to Andy, we, we've done very badly at this in our church, and we're trying to rethink this at the moment. How can we as a church uh, take care of the environment more, and how can we encourage individuals to do that as part of everything that we're meant to be doing? Um, I started a long sentence. I forgot where I was going with it. Oh, yeah, so I think um, it... It, it's not helpful to think, well, God gave us this task, but we just haven't done it for thousands of years, so now we'll just wait until he comes and makes the world new again. Like, we're image bearers. We're meant to be bringing the kingdom, and part of that means praying for the sick. Part of that means working well, um, representing God in every area of society. Part of that means preaching the gospel. Part of it means doing the things he told us to do right at the beginning, caring for this world. And of course, he'll come back one day, day and he'll make it all brand new, but I'd love him to have as little job to do as possible because I've brought as much of the kingdom here now. I heard a church leader say the other day um, their kind of strap line or their, their goal for their church 
is to see just how much of heaven they can get onto earth before God comes. And I like that. I think that's quite a good sort of snappy, uh, I might steal that, but, <laughs> but that's a nice goal, isn't it? Um, um, yeah. I don't think it's a better view for us to have anyway, because if we are image bearers in daily life, mm. that's much better than having well-constructed arguments for yeah. having Jesus as Saviour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's, so people should be able to experience us and just go, there's something different about you, right? What is it? And that's something they can catch, not just here through our words. Um, um, and I think Jesus says that again and again. Um, and Peter says that in various times. He says, live such good lives among the pagans, which is obviously not a term I regularly use to describe my friends, but like those who don't know you, uh, live such good lives amongst you that though they slander you, although they accuse you of X, Y, or Z, they will see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. What do they see? They don't say, uh, live such good lives um, and be very articulate so they hear your good arguments and praise our Father in heaven. Like they say, so they see your good deeds and go, there's something powerful about you. And it's like they've been going around through this life and they encounter you and like, what's going on? And they see this statue this image and they go oh i know who's your king i know whose kingdom i'm coming under as i spend time with you as i hang out with you yeah which actually brings us nicely on to uh, what we're going to look at so i'm going to look i want us to look now at how jesus um spoke and acted um self-consciously as the king who was bringing the kingdom and we're going to look at jesus words and his deeds and we're going to focus primarily on what Jesus did, first of all. But the implication in all of this is well, this is just what we were meant to be doing from day one. Um, and so we'll end the session by thinking, what does this mean for us? How do we live as image bearers, as bearers of the kingdom? So, uh, as I said on the final um, page, Jesus says, go and proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So that's something you do with your words. And then... Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. These aren't two isolated things that Jesus is saying. Uh, Go and proclaim the kingdom, and once you've done that, do some other nice stuff for people. He's saying, go and declare the kingdom through your words and through your actions, and that's exactly what Jesus did. So we're going to firstly look at the stories of the kingdom, the parables, and then we're going to look at the signs of the kingdom. And um, we'll see how far through we get with this. Um, Of course, we could look at all of Jesus' teaching, But I want to focus on the stories because I think what he does in the stories is he takes the big story of scripture and he tells it in interesting kind of ways. Um, um, Great. Okay, so the parables. And this is like a a super brief summary. Um, And I teach, actually I've taught a whole day on the parables. So we're going to go through this very, very quickly in about maybe 15 minutes. So the parables are... Four things, I think. Firstly, they are communicative. They're not just nice stories. They're not just entertaining tales. They are there to communicate something. So the parables are not simply preaching illustrations. They are tools of communication. So the themes of the parables are likely to correspond to the things that Jesus taught about. So when I use a preaching illustration, it it isn't suddenly like, well, I've been talking about this topic, but now I just need to get you back. So I just show you a cat or something like I I use the illustration, at least when I'm doing it right. I use the illustration to help you understand what I've been teaching about in slightly less engaging ways. And the same is true of Jesus' ministry. So when he went around and he was teaching people, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Uh, Let me tell you a story. The story relates to that. So we should think that the parables are all about the things that Jesus taught about most, which is... The kingdom, I think. C.H. Dodd says the parables represent the interpretation which our Lord offered of his own ministry. 
N.T. Wright says they make sense only within the context of Jesus' career. They echoed, reflected, interpreted and indeed defended the main thrusts of Jesus' work and and themselves set up other echoes in turn. That is, everything Jesus was talking about and doing is somehow related to the parables. And so if we want to understand the parables, it's worth saying, well, what did Jesus talk about all the time? It's the kingdom, therefore the parables are all about the kingdom. I think as a simple rule of thumb, um, every parable is basically about the kingdom. And if you just bear that in mind, it will stop you getting some very weird (laughs) readings of the parables. Um, Sometimes we come to a parable and we're like, this is so odd. What do I do with it? Uh, Like, how do I start? And, And it can be really difficult to know. Rule of thumb, it's about the kingdom. Job done. <laughs> like, or at least that gives you a great starting point because you're not having to agonise over it. It's about what Jesus talked about most, which is about the kingdom. And N.T. Wright says, the story which can be evoked by the phrase kingdom of God may well be present even though the phrase itself is absent. So in other words, if you read a parable and it doesn't say the kingdom, I think you can still say it's about the kingdom because it fits within Jesus' ministry, which is all about the kingdom. And the kingdom is all about God's rule impacting all of life. So rule of thumb. All parables are about the kingdom. Take that as your starting point and you'll be fine. Uh, But secondly, they're communicative, they are cultural. That is, they're written to people at a particular point in time with references that would make sense to them in their world. Um, And that's important to bear in mind, and we won't get into that in much depth, but someone asked earlier about the importance of understanding Middle Eastern culture. And you will not understand the parables if you think that they were written for everyone to understand in their own context. I read, when I was doing uh, my master's, I I was reading an article... um, Basically, uh, it was a very modern, very serious article. This was not a joke. Um, a, a serious article saying um, that basically Jesus got it wrong uh, with the parable of the mustard seed because he said it's the smallest of all seeds. Actually, there are smaller seeds. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's stupid. That's like Jesus saying, like Jesus um, telling the fishermen, like, to throw your nets over this side. Well, if Jesus had a sonar, maybe he would have done it differently. Like, you can't, you can't apply modern logic, modern understanding to something that was there. At Jesus' time, mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds. Jesus wasn't going to go, oh, actually, there is one smaller. It's just that it lives thousands of miles away in a land you've never heard of and no one will discover it for 2,000 years. But, you know, Jesus was writing to people in their own context. He wasn't going to tell the Sermon on the Mount and they're just having a side about Twitter and people go, what's that about? Well, uh, don't worry. In thousands of years' time, that joke's really going to hit home. Like, that's, that's, that's playing the long game, but that's pretty stupid as well. So, so Jesus was writing to a particular people at a particular period of time. And so some of the stuff we look at and we think, I don't know about that. That just seems like the wrong way to do things. Well, that's because we've, we're living in a different place. So some people say, for example, the parable of the sower. It doesn't make sense. That's not how you do sowing. It's how they did sowing then. Um, it may be different to now. So it's cultural. Um, thirdly, uh, they are confrontational. So when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, it says they perceived that he was talking about them. And although they were seeking king to arrest him they feared the crowds so sometimes the people heard the parables and they didn't go oh nice story they were like i don't like the story i want to arrest you or i want to kill you and thankfully that's only happened to me twice in my no it hasn't happened to me at all yet or maybe today's the day but like jesus told these stories not just as a light moment but in order to confront many of people's expectations and people got it because they got angry and they wanted to arrest him or do him in uh, for the most part jeremiah says um though not exclusively they are weapons of controversy that is, they, they call for an answer on the spot. So the parable just unlocks something about the truth of the kingdom that makes us go, oh, that's not what I expected. I don't like that. That challenges me. And sometimes it creates a reaction in people where they go, oh, man, I've, I've got to change, which is repentance. Or it makes them think, I don't like that. I want to kill you. And, and we see both of those. 
in the stories of the parables. Um, we see it in the Gospels as a whole. Uh, and actually, it was not often to sinners that Jesus addressed the gospel in parables, but his, to his critics, to the ones who rejected him. And Jesus often told the parables with the harshest endings in order to help people to understand you're part of the problem. You think you're part of the solution, but actually you're part of the problem and you're standing in opposition to God in this matter. So they're confrontational. But fourthly, they are cryptic. Um, if we had time, we would look at these passages. But in, in Matthew 13 and Ma- uh, and Mark 4, there's this sort of strange thing where, where Jesus says in Mark 4, 11 to 12, I, I talk in parables so that you will be able to see, but not perceive. So Jesus seems to tell the parables in order that they'll kind of go, I, no, I don't get it. But then a few verses later, verse 33, he says, I speak in parables as you are able to hear it. So, <laughs> which is it? Like, does he speak in parables so that people will understand or so they won't understand? And the answer is, Yes, <laughs> it, 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 it's both. It's both. And the reason it's both is because in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus sort of says this sort of uh, same deal. And he goes back to Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. And um, if we had time, you, should, you do look at it. When I throw out references like this and don't actually quote it, there's a danger I'm making it up. I'm not making it up. But do check for yourself. Like, go back and read these and see how Jesus does it. But he quotes Isaiah 6, where Israel was already idolatrous, but God speaks in cryptic ways in order to confirm their hard-heartedness. So there's something about the parables which is cryptic. And essentially what it does is it solidifies what is in your heart. So if your heart is inclined towards God, then him speaking in a parable will take that goodness in your heart and bring it to the surface so that you get to engage with him better. If your heart is already inclined to w- away from God, then what the parable will do will just be, it will reinforce the hardness that is already developing in your own heart. So if you're already an enemy of God, then the parable will make you angry because it will just make you think, I don't understand that, or I do understand that and I don't like it and I want to kill you. So part of the problem was not actually that the Pharisees didn't understand the parables. They did understand the parable and they didn't like it. Hence, they wanted to kill him. So the parables, they reveal, but they also conceal. So to the people who are uh, kingdom minded already, who are open to Jesus, it just draws them closer. It gives them a vision of this life that God wants to sort of uh, wants them to enter into. To the people who are already close hearted to the gospel, it shuts them down even further. And even, in fact, turns some of them into Jesus enemies. So four things to bear in mind about the parables. Let's go to the next page. So when we're thinking about the parables, um, and I'm not going to spend long on this because my primary focus today is on the kingdom, not on the parables. It's just that the kingdom is a major theme in the parables. But when you are reading the parables, uh, here are just four things to think about. Firstly, look for one main point. Often a parable will only have one basic truth in mind, R.T. Kendall says. We must not try to read more into a parable than we ought. We must never try to make a parable stand on all four legs. Uh, not every detail of a parable has to have a meaning. And I think that's, that's really helpful advice. I think, I can't quite remember. Uh, I'm sure you all remember every detail of what I preached last year when I was here, but um, I don't. Um, I think we did something on Augustine's parable of the Good Samaritan. Do, we, yeah. do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, that was the very first thing we did, yeah. So we looked at this parable uh, of the Good Samaritan and Augustine's interpretation of it, where he's like, well, the moon represents this, and this represents this, and this represents Paul, who wasn't even around at the time of the parable. So all these sorts of things. And that's a classic example of people reading so much into every detail and forgetting the basic principle that it's all about the kingdom, right? And there's often one main point. Now, there is symbolism and stuff 
Uh, but if we're to understand that properly, well, that's, that's point four here. Um, bear in mind, first of all, it's about the kingdom. And often there's one main point. Don't try and read too much into it. So when you're reading a parable, look for one main point about the kingdom. Secondly, look at the wider setting. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Uh, how did his hearers interpret it? What's around it? Are there other parables? Are there miracles? Um, for example, um, you might want to think about the wider setting of a story that he's telling. So if he tells a parable and then that's put in a particular gospel next to a miracle story and you think, What's, why are those next to each other? Is it just that they happen chronologically? No, it might be that they're put together because the story illustrates something of the miracle or the miracle grounds the story. So look at the wider setting, what's around it. Uh, look at the reactions of the crowds, because that will tell you. Look at why Jesus told the parable. So sometimes it will say, this was said in order to, or the disciples asked this, and so Jesus told them this. And those are clear clues. The reason he told the story was because of that. Um, look at the reactions of the crowd, that will help you. Uh, thirdly, look at its place in Jesus' ministry as a whole. So how does this story fit within the other main themes of Jesus' ministry, in particular the kingdom? Well, you may want to think, about some of the stuff we covered in the last session. If, if, if Luke's emphasis is on Jesus reaching the outcast, why is it that he talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son? Um, how does that fit within Luke's portrayal of Jesus' story as opposed to Matthew's portrayal of Jesus' story, for example? And then the fourth thing to think about is this. Um, the parables may contain allegorical elements, as sort of representative, um, metaphorical ideas. But their meaning is most often derived from the Old Testament. So the problem with Augustine's version of the Good Samaritan um, is that he just seems to have plucked things from thin air. You think, I don't know how you've got that. But when we come across something like a tree or a seed or um, uh, a sheep or something like that, the way to figure out what that means is to say, well, what is it always meant in Scripture? And to look back at the prophets, because Jesus was telling these stories in order to remind people of old stories and to help them to appreciate them in a new light. So think about the symbols. How were they used previously? Does the story sound familiar? If Jesus has told the story in a particular way that reminds you of an Old Testament story, that may be deliberate because he's wanting you to think about that old story in a new light. And actually, on the final page, I've given you uh, as an example, um, an, an exercise for you to do. If you were to read Mark 12, 1 to 12, the story of the, um, the wicked tenants, uh, it's really similar to a passage in Isaiah 5, a very famous passage in Isaiah 5. So if you were to read Isaiah 5, which would have been very familiar to the Jewish hearers, like essentially when you start reading the wicked tenants, it's like, oh, I know this story, I know this story. But then certain details of it get changed. I don't know how many of you have kids, but if you um, are reading a story to them, they become really familiar with the story. And they're like, I know what comes next. And if you change one of the details, they go crazy. And, and, and I think that's what Jesus was doing. So I do that sometimes. It's really funny. My daughter, you're going through the story and you just say, and then Goldilocks was eaten by the wolf. No, that's not what happened. Or... Um, uh, um, or just something or rather, you just change it. And they're so familiar with the story that it jars and they think, why have you made that change? Jesus does that with the parables all the time. And Mark 12 is a great example of that. So as one of your exercises, you may want to run through these four points with Mark chapter 12 and Isaiah 5. But I'll leave that to you. So let's do a quick example with three parables. Um, and we'll only take five minutes on this. Uh, so very, very quick. Um, in fact, let's not even get into groups. Let's just, let's just do it together. Let's just do it out loud. Would someone read Matthew 13, 31 to 32? And with each of these, um, 
I want us to ask, what did these parables teach us about the king and the kingdom? So would someone read out Matthew 13, 31 to 32? Great. I mean, I have to quibble with Jesus a little bit because there are smaller seeds than mustard seeds. And so, I, I, so, in fact, I've lost my faith right now. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. But what, what, what is going on in this passage? Um, what, what, what's the one main point? What's he talking about? Kingdom. Kingdom. Hey, well done. Yeah, he's talking about the kingdom. Um, in fact, we know that. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, so, um, so that was an easy one. <laughs> but well done, you, you got it right nonetheless. Um, what is the kingdom like here? What's it like? Well, it sort of is, isn't it? But that's not actually where the sentence ends. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which has been planted in a field and then grows into a tree. So that's interesting. So it's not just that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, it's like a mustard seed to which something happens. It's actually the kingdom is like the result of what happens when the mustard seed is planted. So it's not to say that that's wrong. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. But what is it particularly about a mustard seed? It's not just that it's tiny. Um, that's, <laughs> kingdom of heaven is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so but, but it's the story of what happens to the mustard seed that the kingdom is like, isn't it? So it starts tiny and it grows. Um, and it grows into a tree that gives shelter to the birds. So what is going on there? Well, if we had time, we could read Ezekiel 31 and Daniel 4. Um, And in both of those places, we get these stories where trees tend to represent. I mean, we're not looking at this text, but anyone think what trees represent in the Old Testament? Often. Life. Yeah, that is one. Shelter. Yeah, shelter. And fruit bearing, yeah, but particularly, I guess, the way prophets talk about it. I mean, I'm being mean because I'm not actually letting you read the text, but, but nations often. So the trees of Lebanon or the trees of, uh, so trees represent mighty nations that give shelter to the birds of the air. And so in these passages, often in the prophets, the birds of the air represent other nations or other people groups that find shelter within a, a particular nation. So when Jesus says, that the kingdom is like this tiny little thing that grows into a tree and then the birds come and find its, uh, come and perch in the branches. I think he's saying the kingdom starts tiny, but it grows into something where others can flock in and can um, find shelter, can find rest, can find inclusion. But what's interesting is it doesn't actually become a massive tree at all. It's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, but there is no comparison between a mustard bush and a cedar, for example. So maybe there's a sense in which the kingdom will always look small compared to other nations. I mean, maybe people's expectation was Israel is going to be the greatest of all nations and no one will be able to rival it. And Jesus says, kingdom is going to start small. It's, it's going to get a bit bigger and it's going to give shelter, but it's never going to rival a cedar. That's kind of not what, if you're looking for that, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. There's something about the kingdom that may always look unimpressive to people. I think that's quite powerful. That's a good reminder to have for ourselves when we sort of feel like, oh, the church is waning a little bit or we don't have as much power or say in society. I think that's always something, a characteristic of the kingdom, according to Jesus here. So he's challenging people's views of the kingdom. You with me? 
Um, somewhere read verse 33. Great. What's this parable about? Kingdom. Yeah, kingdom. Uh, you'd be surprised by the number of people who don't say that, though. The number of commentators that say this is about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. No, it's not. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, and it follows something about the kingdom. And then there are other things about the kingdom later. It's about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Um, now, actually, in scripture, when leaven or yeast is referred to, it's often negative. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees or beware this corrupting influence that can spread throughout you. Now, Jesus isn't saying the kingdom of heaven is like that, but he's saying that what happens there when negative things get into you and spread throughout and, and affect the whole dough, the kingdom is like that as well. But the kingdom is a positive influence in an otherwise dark and difficult world. So he's talking about something growing and spreading um, and that takes time. I mean, I don't know how many of you bake bread. I love to bake bread. In particular, I love to bake sourdough, and that takes days on end. And um, are you a bread baker? Yeah. Do you just follow me on Instagram? Yeah, yeah there you go. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it's like, <laughs> followed by Tim Simmons. I was like, oh, I wonder. Uh, yeah, yeah. Keep up the bread baking. Uh, but like, it takes time, right? You, you don't put yeast in and suddenly it's like, bam fully grown loaf like it takes time and particularly sourdough takes a long time it's slow and that's something of the nature of the kingdom jesus was a hipster is what i'm saying <laughs> third one uh matthew 13 44 can someone read verse 44 okay What's this about? Kingdom. <laughs> Kingdom. Uh, actually, you're wrong. This one is not. A... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, it, it literally says it. Um, now, why, why did Jesus tell this story? Like, do you think Jesus was trying to say to these people, by the way, you may not have thought of this before, but the kingdom is actually really valuable. Like, no one needed to know that. Everyone knew the kingdom was valuable. They already knew that it was the most precious thing. They'd been longing for it for ages. They'd been longing for this Messiah to come and put the world to rights. So Jesus wasn't telling that to make people go, oh, wow, I'd never really thought that this was precious before. What he's challenging is, is the way you take hold of the kingdom, right? No one needed convincing this was precious. What they needed convincing of was, I've got to do something radical to take hold of this kingdom. So maybe he's challenging people's expectations and saying, give up your preconceived ideas of what the kingdom would look like and, and follow me. I think he's challenging people not to cling on to an expectation of what the kingdom is, which is going to come through being really pure, or it's going to come by being really isolated, or it's going to come by force. He's saying if you cling on to that, you'll miss out. What you need to do is give up your expectations of the kingdom and give up everything in order to take hold of this, this precious kingdom that I have to come and bring you. Now, do you see here... Probably not, none of those are actually vastly different from interpretations we would typically have held of... If you've preached on those passages, that's probably roughly what you've got to. But just by looking at some of the theme of the kingdom broadly and then thinking, how did Jesus use old themes in new ways? It just helps us to be on solid ground so that we're not just plucking ideas from thin air. We're actually using scriptural tools the way scripture would have used them and how people would have heard them. Does that make sense? Great. Any, um, any questions on Jesus teaching about the kingdom? The words he said about the kingdom. No, but do you think 
I do take. If your bread baking looked as good as mine, you would take photos of it as well. I mean, it's, it's impressive. It's really good. Oh, there you go. That's two I made yesterday. Oh, well, that is impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. Okay. <laughs> did it taste good, Tim? Yes. Yeah. Did, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, Okay, so Jesus, Jesus taught about the kingdom in words, but he also taught about the kingdom in deeds. And so the second thing I want to, or the final thing I really want to think on, is the signs of the kingdom. Uh, when we think of sign, signs and wonders in the gospel, what kind of things come to mind? Miracles. Miracles, Miracles. like? Raising the dead, water into wine. Walking on water. Healing, calming the storm, <laughs> calming the storm, <laughs> casting out demons, food, the food one, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, t- yeah, multiplying bread so that everyone could see it. First century equivalent of Instagram, right there. So you, Jesus was a hipster. Um, sorry, sign of Jonah. Yeah, yeah. Ultimate sign was the resurrection, wasn't it? Now, if, if I were to ask you. Why did Jesus do those signs? I don't think that's a question we ask ourselves that much. Like we often think, well, maybe, maybe just to be nice, or because like people had sickness and, or hunger and to fill, fill them. But actually, they're not referred to as miracles, they're referred to as signs. And signs always point to something. Like I drove up here yesterday and I only got here because I followed signs, because signs point me in a particular direction so that I know how to get to what they're pointing to. And so often the questions we ask about miracles are kind of like, how do we know they really happened? Or to what extent should we expect them to happen today? And so the questions we ask about them are not the questions that the sign is meant to be pointing us to. It's like if I looked at a sign that said, take this motorway to get to Manchester, and I just go, I wonder who put that sign there. I wonder if that's a trustworthy sign. Like, well, that's worth asking, but it's not going to get me to Manchester. I'm only going to get there by following the sign, right? The sign points to something. So it's worth asking, why did Jesus do the signs? What are they pointing to? I think they are pointing to the kingdom. Because Jesus said, proclaim the kingdom and show the kingdom. Proclaim the kingdom and then do the things that show that the kingdom is there, that point people towards the kingdom. So when you read a miracle story, it's worth asking yourself, what does this teach me? And it doesn't just teach me that God likes healing people or God is able to heal people. It teaches me something about the king and the kind of kingdom he has come to bring. So a few questions to ask yourself when thinking about the king and the kingdom. Firstly, when you read a miracle, um, ask, does the episode itself give you any clues as to what Jesus was trying to teach? For example, why did Jesus do it? Or does the author say, again, this was done in order to fulfill X, Y, or Z? Um, How do people respond? That sort of thing. Look at what the episode says for the reason why Jesus did the miracle. Then look at the wider setting. So what's around it? Um, is that miracle next to a parable or next to a teaching or next to another miracle? Have, has the writer sort of grouped them together so you see a whole load of miracles together? Or is there a reason why one particular miracle is, is next to a bit of teaching? Um, I, I, don't, I haven't put this in your notes, I don't think, but some examples, you may want to write these down. Um, and in fact, one of the exercises you want to do, I'll give you a clue with one of them and then maybe you want to do an exercise on them. Uh, I'll leave the rest to you. But um, The cursing of the fig tree in Mark 11, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, and the healing of the blind man in John 9. So Mark 11, John 6, and John 9. Uh, It's worth thinking about 
each of those three miracles. And when you look at them and you look at what they're next to, it gives you insight into why Jesus did the miracle. So let's pick one of those. Let's take the fig tree. Yeah, you picked the hardest of the three, didn't you? So the, the cursing of the fig tree in, um, in Mark 11 is, is, is a fascinating uh, one. So Jesus curses this fig tree. And if we had time, we could look at the whole context of that. But it's really odd. It's like, just Jesus does not like figs or something. Like, and what about caring for creation? He just <laughs> cursed the fig tree. Like, what's going on there? So you wrestle with that. But then you realize that the story is actually split into two. He curses the fig tree. And then what does he do next? He goes into the temple. And then he talks about all sorts of things to do with the temple. And then he comes back and he looks at the fig tree and it's withered. And so why did he split up that miracle and put temple stuff all around it? Well, it's because it's somehow related to Jesus' views on the temple. And I won't give you any more answers apart from that. But, but when you suddenly look at it in contrast to what else is around it, you realise, oh, that was an enacted parable. That was a parable in more than just words, in actions. Because you are trying to say in this very visible, literal way what you believe about the temple and its fate. Does that make sense? So look at what's surrounding it and you'll get an idea of why Jesus did those particular themes and then look at the wider ministry of Jesus so does this miracle shed any light on another theme uh, in Jesus teaching Um, and then maybe look at the use of Old Testament imagery so again does it uh, does it draw on any Old Testament themes or prophetic promises so if Jesus does a miracle about wine it's worth asking what was wine about in the Old Testament Um, where is wine mentioned and um, yeah, we'll come to this in the exercise in a second, so I won't give away the answer. Or, or, or um, if Jesus does a miracle about sight or about light or something like that, what, how does that relate to an Old Testament theme? Uh, how can we therefore understand what the sign was pointing towards? So I want us basically to think about the narrative function of the signs. The signs weren't just Jesus doing a nice thing because he felt good on a particular day and thought we'd pay it forward. He's just saying, like, I want to communicate something about who I am and the kind of kingdom I have come to bring. And therefore, we should ask ourselves, why has he done that? What do the signs teach us about him and his kingdom? So let's, um, let's look at a few of them and a few groups together. And we've got... Let's go for, let's break this section in half. So these three tables here, you are one section and all the people on the seats at the back, you are uh, again one section. And, I, and then, so one group, two, three, four. Again, I don't expect you to get together as a group, just gather with the people in your row. And what I want you to do is this, um, this group up here, I want you to look at some of the physical healings in Luke 8, and you may want to refer to Leviticus 15 as well. Um, This group here, uh, you three tables, I want you to look at the the raising of the dead um, miracle, and you may want to refer to Hosea 6 a little bit. You guys on the chairs towards the back, I want you to look at some of the nature miracles, um, and then you guys on the right, look at the food miracles, and then I'll I'll do the casting out spirits thing. I mean, not do the casting out spirits. Well, who knows? (laughs) Uh, Some of you, I suspect, could do with that. So... um, Let's take, again, just five minutes. What does this teach us about the king and the kingdom? Five minutes, go. So what do these different signs teach us about the king and the kingdom? And let's start with the um, physical healing group over here. Uh, what, what's the sort of significance of the, the physical healings that Jesus did? What did you think in your, in your reading there? 
Yeah. For years, for years and years, and probably would have been nobody would have touched her or mm. been anywhere near her. Yeah. But she'd heard and she believed. Yeah. And she touched the Lord, and He. Yeah. Felt that come out. Yeah. It's like His compassion and love. Yeah. For something unclean, which made her. So, so we looked at something about a physical healing, but it has, it's way deeper than just a physical yeah. healing, right? So this lady is ceremonially unclean because of her issue of blood. And so that would have meant, according to the Levitical law, a whole load of things that the Pharisees would have been really strict at holding up, which actually would have cut her off from society. People wouldn't have been able to talk to her, um, touch her. She would have been lonely. She would have been isolated. Uh, she wouldn't have been able to go to the temple. She wouldn't have been able to worship. And so Jesus heals her. And it's not just like, oh, good, the blood stopped. Like, it's everything has changed in her life, right? Everything has changed. She's suddenly welcomed. She's suddenly included. She's suddenly able to worship again. She's suddenly able to go back into society. Yeah, healing is a sign of the full inclusion that Jesus wants to bring and, and restoring every part of our life. And it says, your faith has made you well. Actually, the word in the Greek is sozo. It means it saved you. So salvation is not just, oh, I believe these things, therefore I get to float off to heaven and be with the angels or something like that. It's like my whole life gets changed. I get rescued physically as well as every other way. Yeah, brilliant. What does it say about the king? He cares about every part of us and he's powerful to change it. What does it say about his kingdom? It affects every area of our lives. It brings inclusion. It brings reconciliation. It brings healing and restoration. Amazing. Uh, raising the dead group. What did you uh, guys think from your passages? Anyone? You got waylaid. <laughs> Were you looking at my Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it uh, when Lazarus died, mm. Martha comes and tells him off. Yeah. And he says, I'm the resurrection of the life. And yeah. he says it and then he does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says something and he does it. So again, words and deeds come together. Yeah. There's also the parallel between how long Lazarus was in the tomb, mm. there was a stone mm. crossed. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, um, and the parallel with. Yeah, great. And does it also remind you of another three days of death? And uh, it's one somewhere in the back of... Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's exactly, it's all those things. So, so basically, you get the story of Lazarus. And, um, and, and when Jesus says, do you believe he will live again? I don't have time to get into this properly, but proper... There were various different views of the afterlife. And um, uh, you may come to this in another session. Again, I teach a whole day on this, so in, in a minute... Um, uh, the main view, probably at the time of Jesus, was that um, uh, the Sadducees didn't agree with this, but the Pharisees did, um, would be that there would be a final bodily resurrection that would come at the end of all things. And it was somehow linked to the Messiah, but of course no one expected the Messiah to die and rise again. So they were expecting that one day the Messiah would come and there will be, Israel would be restored and people would literally physically be raised from the dead. And so there's this great end times resurrection. And so Jesus says to Martha, do you believe he'll live again? And she gives the right theological answer. Yes, I believe he will live again at the end, at the great resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection in the life. In other words, the future is broken into the here and now. And so he takes that verse from Hosea 6, which talks about resurrection on the third day, and he does it here. But actually, we know that Lazarus probably went and died again. So it was just a temporary miracle. But what did it do? It said, well, something of that promised thing in Hosea is broken into the here and now and will come in full in the future. And it foreshadows Jesus' own death and resurrection. 
So he is showing he is the one who is powerful over death and that his kingdom will not be defeated by, by anything at all. Bless you. And, um, and that the promises of resurrection can happen now, temporarily, will definitely happen in full. Yeah. Great. It does link to the sign of Jonah, yeah. Why four days? Just a long track for Jesus to get there. <laughs> I think it's probably more to do with Jewish rituals. So um, I think that there are, I can't remember the reference off the top of my head, but um, there, are, there are Jewish rituals that say after a certain number of days, um, a body is considered like they go through different stages of being considered dead. I mean, it's, it's dead, isn't it? But, you know, um, but after a certain number of days, certain things have to be done, embalming, etc., etc. At this point, it was categorized as fully dead. Um, uh, and Jesus came and did it at the, the moment where the miracle was the greatest because he was as dead as you can be dead, that sort of thing. So, um, there's also, I think, an implicit claim to divinity in here. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, uh, you may have looked at this in John's gospel before, but that phrase, I am, is ego me, it is the name of God, I am. So he's not just saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's saying, I am, in <laughs> God, the resurrection and the life. I'm able to bring resurrection and life because I am actually God breaking into the here and now. Nature miracles. What did you uh, guys make? What was the story you looked at and what did it say about the king and the kingdom? Yeah. Uh, is it, well, what was the story, first of all, for those that haven't read it? It's Kami of the Storm. Yeah, and you, you were talking about the vastness of the ocean. So in the sense, the king is powerful over this vast thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so many things there. Um, so the Old Testament says, um, God alone can calm the seas. Jesus calms the seas and people go, who is this man? God alone. <laughs> like he, he is God. So it's a demonstration of power, doing what only God can do. And then, yes, from there, they get across to the other side of the lake and just incredible miracles. Um, with the, the healing of the uh, guy who's been oppressed by demons, uh, Jairus' daughter, and so on and so on. Which got to make you wonder, well, where did that storm come from? And was it something that was designed to stop him getting to the other side? And uh, if God is powerful over that, that shows us something about the kingdom, which then gets demonstrated by him getting there and setting Legion free. Uh, or setting the guy free from Legion, rather. Um, yeah, so in, in all these sort of interesting things together. In the Old Testament as well, the sea is often a picture of chaos. So in creation, uh, what does God do? The spirit hovers over the waters and out of this sort of chaotic mess, he creates order and he creates life. And there are various references to uh, in the Psalms, I think Psalm 90 something, 92, I can't remember, uh, to this defeating of this sea creature um, and Leviathan mentioned in Job. And um, in Noah and Moses, you get stories in which waters 
uh, are conquered by God, whether parting or um, through God preserving his people through the chaos of the water. So, so seas are constantly a picture of chaos. So when you get to Revelation, it says in the new creation, there is no sea. You're like, oh man, but I like sailing. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying that chaos will be utterly defeated once more. In fact, there's just this flat sea of glass not moving at all. There'll still be sea. You're okay. <laughs> uh, but God is saying, finally, all of the chaos of this world will be defeated in the new creation. And, and he sort of preempts that now in the nature miracles. Yeah. Food miracles. This guy, I put the baker in the food miracle group. There you go. It wasn't deliberate. But um, uh, what, what was the story you looked at? What does it say about the king and the kingdom? Yeah. Great. So Jesus does a miracle where he, um, at a wedding, which is already quite an interesting metaphor, isn't it, for the coming together of bride and groom. And we think about how that gets adapted and used in, I mean, in Hosea, that's a key theme about, uh, about the relationship between God and man, Song of Songs, various places. Um, certainly in Revelation that gets picked up as well. So there's something already about wedding imagery and then water being turned into wine. And in the prophets, wine regularly represents celebration. We're told that in the new creation, it will flow with wine. Um, the mountains will flow and drip with wine, which I'm looking forward to. And, and um, all these sorts of things. I think many of the food miracles are basically like little tastes, literal tastes, of the messianic banquet. So people were expecting that when God comes back, we will feast with him on his holy mountain. And so this wedding feast where we celebrate with great food and well-aged meat and well-aged wine, uh, this is a picture of the new creation. And Jesus is literally letting people taste that here and now. And he does that through many ways. He does it through the wine. He does it through the, um, the feeding of the 5,000. All sorts of these things point to that. Um, and then interesting, I suppose, in Luke 14, uh, verse 15, there is this guy... Uh, who says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he's talking about that messianic banquet. And, and then Jesus says, let me tell you a parable about a wedding banquet. And so this kind of all these ideas come together. And so it's interesting, again, to see how teachings and miracles sort of interact, all to point towards this glorious future that he has for us. So in each of these ways, we get sort of physical um, experiences of the kingdom of God. Uh, the fifth one, which I'll just do quickly, is the casting out of spirits. And there's loads that we could say about this. Um, I, I mean, I'd love to chat for a day about what we make of all that sort of stuff. It really is difficult to get our heads around in this 21st century secular age that we live in. But, but actually, particularly in Mark's gospel, um, and again and again, Jesus seemed to have this clash with the spiritual world. Um, and he cast out spirits all the time. And I Matthew and Luke both start off Jesus' ministry with a showdown between him and the Satan in the wilderness. Um, there are regular sayings about spirits, casting out spirits. Um, and I think what's really interesting about this is in terms of what it teaches about the kingdom is it teaches us who the real enemy is. So if you would ask the Pharisees or the Zealots in particular or the, the Essenes, who is the enemy that is stopping the kingdom of God coming? The Pharisees probably would have said, Rome, maybe. The, the scenes would have said Rome, therefore we need to stab them, we need to kill them, like, or, or we need to resist these people, or we need to separate ourselves from corrupt Israel or Rome. Or, like, people were fixated on 
flesh and blood enemies. What does Paul say about that? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but about powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. So Jesus, it's like he says, yeah, there's a clash of kingdoms, but it's not the one you think. It's a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the enemy. And so he constantly just shifts the focus, which is um, so easy for us just to demonize human beings. And we do that all the time. And we see that right through our world, not just in religious settings, but political discourse and the way that classes or genders talk about each other. We, we so easily demonize others and we particularly demonize others when we forget there are actual demons out there. And, and so Jesus, he, like, he brings the focus back to this is the real battle. It's between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so he says, Luke eleven twenty. 20, um, it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom has come upon you. Uh, and then he challenges people to say, well, which side are you on? And essentially, some of the people who think they're standing up for the kingdom may really be in opposition to the kingdom and therefore siding with evil. And, and so this is another powerful part of Jesus' ministry. So all of these signs are not just him doing nice stuff. It's him saying, this is the kind of king I am and this is the kind of world that God intends for you to live in. When... When God rules, there is no sickness, there is no suffering, there is no pain. Evil has to flee. Good comes. There is wine. There is celebration. There is joy. There are people who have lost loved ones that get them back. There are people who fear death, who, who are released from fear. There are people who are cut off from society. They get drawn back in. The kingdom affects everything. Everything. And that's the Gospels in a nutshell. <laughs> and so where I want to end is this. And I don't... Well, I haven't thought how to end, really, so that, that was a mistake. But like, how similar is that to the way that we preach or to the way that we think about our lives? For those of us that get to preach the gospel or those of us who just think, oh, I wish my friends would know the gospel. What are we wishing that they would know? Are we wishing that they would know three facts that then would get them into heaven? In which case, that may well not be what Jesus was here to do at all. Or are we wishing that they would experience something of the beauty and life-changing power of God that he came to bring. When people come across us, are they meant to think this is a person who's got some answers or are they meant to think, oh, something about them radiates a hope and a joy and a life and a vitality that I couldn't get anywhere else? When people come to our churches, what are they expecting? How can we demonstrate the kingdom, not just through our words, through our actions? When we pray, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. What are we expecting will happen? What do we think it would look like if that prayer got answered? I think we're often thinking, uh, would you come back so we can end the world? <laughs> like, so then we can go into eternity. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying, Lord, would something of that future break in in the here and now because I'm not satisfied with the brokenness I see around me. I'm not satisfied with the pain that I see by the brokenness in the communities, by the segregation, by the hatred, by the way people demonize other groups. I'm not satisfied with the brokenness I see in the earth. I'm not satisfied with the death and the often meaningless death that I see around me. I'm not satisfied with the violence. I'm not satisfied with the sickness and the suffering and the stuff that people have to go through, which was not in Eden and will not be in your new creation. So right now, would you wipe away some of those tears? And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven which I think we should be praying all the time. We should also know that God calls us to bring something of a taste of that kingdom. God calls us to be the people through whom people get to experience that kingdom. I'm not satisfied with the number of times I lay my hands on sick people and they don't get better. So I'm pretty sure if Jesus were laying his hands on them, 
they'd be getting better way more frequently. But to pray, your kingdom come, is a way of saying, I want more of that. It's also a way of saying, Lord, I don't want anything in me to stop that. I think sometimes I pray your kingdom come as if I expect God to do all the work. <laughs> and I forget that I might be the reason he's not coming. So I think when we pray your kingdom come, part of it's like that parable. Are we willing to give up everything that stops us taking hold of the treasure? Or are we so invested in building our own kingdom like the kingdom of Liam or the kingdom of Christ Church Manchester or the kingdom of whatever church we're part of or the kingdom of whatever makes us feel comfortable or are we willing to give that up for the kingdom of heaven? That's challenging. If we were to pray right now, your kingdom come in this room, what would happen? If we were to pray your kingdom come in Manchester or wherever you're from, what would that look like? What would it require of us? What could Jesus do through us? Why don't you just close your eyes where you are right now? You may find it helpful to hold out your hands. Sometimes when we hold out our hands, it's a way of saying with our bodies, I believe that everything matters. I believe that physicality matters. And I want to do two things. One, I want to be ready to receive from you. And two, I want to be ready to surrender anything that's in my hands right now that's stopping the kingdom. Why don't you just imagine right now, where are areas in your life? It could be personally, it could be family, it could be church, it could be in your community, your work, whatever. Where are areas where you just want the kingdom? Picture that area of your life right now that doesn't look like the king is in charge. And now in your mind's eye, imagine what that would look like if the king was in charge. If his kingdom came in that scenario right now. When we pray your kingdom come, we're asking for that second picture to break in and eradicate the first. Now ask God, is there anything that I need to do to be a vessel for your kingdom, bringing your kingdom in that area? Holy Spirit, would you just fill us right now with courage 
and with boldness and the ability to do the things that you did and the things you sent us out to do. And I want to pray for every area of our lives that currently lacks your kingdom. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In our lives as in heaven. I feel like there were some people who, as you pictured things in your mind's eye there, what came to mind were, <clears throat> were family members who were walking away from the Lord. And I feel like... Um, <coughs> I feel like God wants you to know he's heard the cries of your hearts. And if he is able to resurrect dead little children and bring them back to their parents... He's able to draw your sons and daughters back to him as well. And it's not just that he's able, he loves to do it. Keep crying out for his kingdom to come. Maybe some of you is sickness that you just know you're experiencing in your life right now. I want to pray that the kingdom would come. In bodies right across this room, I pray that the kingdom would come. I know, Jesus, that if you walked up and down these aisles and touched us, you would bring healing. So I want to pray that increasingly you would do that in our people. I pray for healing to come in this room. And I pray that you would give us faith to do the things that you did, to lay hands on the sick and to see them healed, to lay hands on the oppressed and see them set free, to bring people into wholeness and fullness. I pray even right now, would those in this room who need an experience of your kingdom, would they experience something of your presence right now? <clears throat> if you don't mind, and this is totally up to you, but if you know that you have uh, physical ailments where you would just value someone praying for you, just putting a hand on you simply right now, why don't you just lift your hand where you are? And if you're around one of these people, why don't you just lay a hand on them and pray simply, your kingdom come, your will be done. In this person as in heaven. <clears throat> Could someone pray for that lady at the back there? Just, it's very simple. Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as in heaven. I might be wrong on this, but I, I just I got the name um, George came to mind. I don't know if someone has a relative called George who is particularly either walking away from God or just needs something right now. But I feel like maybe if that's you, come and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. I, I might be wrong. I get these things all the, wrong all the time, you know, but that's part of the risk of following Jesus is we've got to kind of try and do the things that he asks us to do. And <clears throat> I want to pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and faith that we would do the same things that you did. And I pray that we would not feel disheartened. But I pray that we would dare to step out and to trust you.
And I pray that we would have the incredible privilege of being used as vessels for bringing something of your kingdom. I pray even this week and Sunday tomorrow, I pray that there'll be moments where we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and pray with them. I pray there'll be stories of people who dare to step out and to share something they think God might have said to them uh, or get to pray for the sick this weekend and something happens. I pray that your kingdom will break in and I pray that our cities and our country and our world would look different because of men and women who step up and say, I'm not happy with just sitting under the kingdoms of this world. I want to bring the kingdom of God. I want to be an image bearer wherever I go so that people who come close to me and see something of me get a sense of oh wow God really is real and he is in charge we look forward to the day you return and make all things new but in anticipation of that day we pray would your kingdom come through us will we see as much of heaven break into the earth as is physically possible in Jesus name amen thank you so much Liam